Welcome to The Organisational Inclusionist. I'm your host, Grace Masuro. In this podcast series, we'll be delving deep into the pressing issues surrounding equality, diversity and inclusion in both the workplace and the broader world. My goal is to foster understanding, inspire change and amplify the voices of those advocating for a more inclusive and equitable society. Throughout this series, I'll be engaging in candid discussions with leaders, experts, activists and changemakers from various fields. We'll explore the challenges, successes and evolving landscapes of equality, diversity and inclusion. From dismantling systematic biases to promoting equal opportunities for all, we'll touch on a broad range of topics. But we won't stop at discussing problems, we'll actively seek out solutions and actionable steps to drive positive change. Our aim is to inspire and empower you, our listeners, to take an active role in making the world a better place for everyone. This is The Organisational Inclusionist. Let's get started. Welcome to this episode of The Organisational Inclusionist. Today we're joined by Mark Malloy, Director of Programmes at Bales Partners Consulting, a consultancy that's passionate about improving business performance through inspiring modern leadership. Mark, thank you so much for joining today. I'm so excited to get your view on how we move the needle on equality, diversity and inclusion within organisations. But before we dive in, could you tell our listeners a bit about Mark Malloy and the work that you do, but also why you're passionate about equality, diversity and inclusion? Thanks, Grace, for inviting me on. Um, a little bit about Mark Malloy. Uh, I've been involved in areas of social justice all my life since leaving university. My parents were really passionate about that. Maybe fundamental to my upbringing was that my parents were Irish immigrants. So I think that had always given a sense of injustice in society. Later on in life, I guess a, a lot more of a sense of how for some people it's easier to navigate those injustices okay. uh, than others. So that's why it's always been uh, really important for me. So, you know, a working class upbringing, council estate, all these things, and lots of opportunities to to get ahead and always a real sense of having to be involved in work that was able to share that out in society. Throughout my career, I've worked across health, education, local government, all areas housing, and that's always been drawn to those organisations that are involved in work for the betterment of society, so allowing people to thrive. And that's what's always drawn me to that. And then through Bells Parks Consulting, it's been able to take that to a wider level, so more than a national focus, working with more leaders who are at that point where they're wanting to really do something. So moving away from, say, performative actions, but really getting into the heart of, of, of issues and really trying to move the needle. Amazing. So we spoke a few weeks back, and this is kind of why we're having this recording, essentially, because, you know, when we spoke, we spoke about so much, and I was like, we should record this. This should be a podcast episode because you made some really amazing points. And I think your perspective is really important in this conversation. One of the things that you did disclose when we spoke as well was about the diversity within your family as well. So do you want to speak to that a little bit just to give our, our listeners a bit of context? Yeah, sure. So my mum married uh, an Indian man when she was very young, way back in the 70s. And I think both of them suffered as a result of that in, in terms of like a societal perception and family perception mm-hmm. as well. Uh, so within my family, there's mixed culture, mixed heritage. And I think growing up, it's really strange because I think when you grow up, your family is just normal to you. Yeah. And then you get to certain ages where you realise that that's normal to other, that's not normal to other families. Absolutely. And that feeling of being an outsider and creeping and how sometimes we need to apologise for those mm-hmm. differences and certainly to modify those. And I remember from a, from a very young age having to explain why two of my brothers um, were not the same skin colour as mm-hmm. myself. Yeah. And feeling the need that, that I had to explain that to people to make that make sense for them. I think from a, a very early age, feeling that that was a real burden to have mm. to do that yeah. and it wasn't right but also I guess sometimes when you're born into this just feeling it's also natural and normal mm-hmm. I think it's later when you start to question that I also I was talking about this to someone uh, the other day but I also think that that sense of being a sort of second generation within a country gives a unique perspective as well because you know you're slightly different from the, the country you're born into but you also have you don't really necessarily have a strong connection to the country that your parents came from Absolutely. So you can sort of be caught between two camps sometimes in how you feel where home is 
mm-hmm. sort of all your cultural lines. So, so for example, I was speaking about you know, my mother was, was passionately Irish and, and gave that, that strong sense of Irish identity to myself. Mm-hmm. However, I probably feel the least Irish when I'm in Ireland. Yeah, <laughs> because then I become English, <laughs> and, and that can be that can that's a, that's a real thing that sometimes you can, you can grapple with. Mm. Um, and and, and the, the, these pieces of work, you know, um, I, I spend a lot of time in psychology, but I really enjoy grappling with those, um, yeah. you know, brain workouts. Absolutely, I completely identify with that because I was born in Nigeria. I moved here when I was five. So if anyone asks me where I'm from, I'm, I'm Nigerian, and they're like, "But what does your passport say?" And like, it says I'm British, but I've also got a Nigerian one. But because I was born there, I feel this sense of and this is kind of my second home you know the UK is my second home I've lived here since I was five like I said but like you when I go back to Nigeria they treat me as an English person they're like oh you know in yeah it's it's just hilarious how you go home and you feel like an alien but then in your second home you you have this really close affinity and and kind of attachment to your first home because it's like well actually this is this is me but then you go home and then they they're like actually you're not from here (laughs) it's so funny um and I grapple with that a little bit too that feeling of actually where do I belong then thank you Mark so on to the reason why we're here today I've got a few questions obviously that we're going to talk through my first question is how would you define equality, diversity and inclusion in the context of organisations? So I'm not asking for the dictionary definition, but just from your perspective, how would you define them? I think it's I think it's a really interesting question and, and very important because I think when I look back over the years, the terms have changed so much. So mm. I remember when it was equality and diversity. Yeah. Um, and I remember when it was all about explaining what equality meant and it was about everyone being treated the same. Yeah. And now when I think when we talk about equality, we really mean equity. Yeah, and that's about we shouldn't treat people exactly the same because that's not fair. Exactly. So we've actually changed our, our means of the definitions, and I think sometimes we we've now come to a place, certainly in public in the public sector, where we talk about EDI so freely. Sometimes we change the acronym around, but we talk about it so freely. It's almost become a, a thing, and we don't often dissect the components of that. I think it's really important to do that because they they're huge concepts in their own right. So I think that when we're talking about equality, we're talking about equity, and when we're talking about diversity. Um, Whereas I think in the past we were talking a lot about protected characteristics and diversity there. Mm-hmm. Now I think we're talking a lot more about representation mm-hmm. when we talk about diversity. So that's, that's changing as well. I think as we become more familiar with this area of work, I think we go deeper into it. And Absolutely. those things change. And then I think inclusion as well. I don't know how this is now. I don't know how this is. What do we mean by inclusion now? Is that sense that actually you need to feel that you're valued and respected mm-hmm. in order to get the best out of people? So I think for me, within organisations, it's always really important to look at what do these terms mean to mm-hmm. that organisation at that point in time? Yeah. And what do people understand by those as well? Because I think otherwise you can be working with a lot of misconceptions. Absolutely. In, you know, certainly when we say EDI, and sometimes for people that can just mean an acronym, and actually yeah. what, what does that mean to them? And, and what bias do they have to that? So I, I always like to explore what we mean by those language, what it means in that organisation, what's been done before under that yeah. banner. And then to that point of why is this important today in the context? I think... Well, this is now understanding that there's corrective action that needs to be taken because EDI work has been around for a very long time now. Yeah. You know, for the whole of my 20 year career, we've been, <laughs> we've been talking about it, supposedly doing things about it, but the problem has not gone away. I think it's got worse. No. So I think that there's a lot of corrective action that needs to be taken and a lot of um, the ability for people to be comfortable to stand up and say that and, yeah. and understand that to give equity to one group does not take it away from another. No, exactly. Uh, I was at an event last week and I was talking to, to a lady that I met there and she introduced me to this term, the scarcity mindset. Mm-hmm. It's that view that actually if I make it fair for you, then I'm going to lose something. And actually, no, that's not what fairness means. You also mentioned something earlier about equality and by equality, we mean equity nowadays. You know, I think that differentiation is really important because 
I agree, equality and equity, I see them as two completely different things. When we talk about equality, we're talking about making things fair for everyone, right? But when we talk about equity, we're talking about how we then make it fair. So what do we then do to make things fair? How do we appreciate that actually everyone hasn't started from the same point? You know, they haven't started the race at the same marker. And how do we essentially kind of make that playing field equitable and, and essentially fair for everyone to progress and, and to get access and, and grasp some of the opportunities available in their environments? And um, I think it's also really important to acknowledge that in making systems fair, there are groups of people that, that will enjoy less privilege. Yeah. So, you know, the scarcity model does does also need to be looked at because some people will not benefit in the ways they have benefited in the past. Um, and I think that's that acknowledgement that you've benefited from an unfair structure yeah. and, and accepting that, you know, for the greater good of society, it's time to move on. Absolutely. And I think sometimes I think that's a really difficult message to accept. I think and human beings, we all have our negative flaws. And that's a hard one to give up, actually, that maybe you've been enjoying quite a, and it does not say your life's been easy. Yeah. Maybe absolutely. the wind's been, you know, going in the right direction for you. So what are some of the challenges that you face when trying to implement ED&I practices into the daily operations of organisations? I think that, you know, these would be very familiar. I think people listening, but I think sometimes it's being labelled EDI is mm -hmm. a problem. Yeah. Because I think people see it, this as an add-on. They yeah. see this as, oh, this just has to be done. It's yeah. just performative. We have to do it. We've done it in the past. It gets put as the end of a project. It's in project work. It's almost like it's at the very end. We'll just yeah. tick the boxes for EDI. Or you can see any of the EDI work is not given a budget or it's not mm. given resources. Yeah. You know, so I work so many times when you know you you might be working with the head of EDI or the director of EDI, but it's one person. Yeah. And they don't have a budget. Or if they do, it's not guaranteed budget year on year year out. They may not have a team. I think in, in some cases, this may be someone who has a substantive role and EDI has been added to their portfolio. Yeah. Because you know, for, for, for many different reasons, usually not great reasons, mm -hmm. it's because you know you've got a certain protected characteristics. So, oh, you can do this. Yeah. You can be the chair of the, the equality group. So, I think you know there's some problems I see is that lack of resources, lack of budget, a lack of understanding about what EDI means and, and what's trying to be achieved. So, I think attention, to intention, and impact are very yeah. different things. So, sometimes that, that's not been aligned correctly. And I think correct key performance indicators haven't yeah. been agreed either. So, there's no, you know. That the old statement what gets measured gets done is, is just so is so true. Yeah. And but also I think sometimes the wrong KPIs the EDI are put there. So these can be really um tokenistic or you know the, they are not going to drive the, the right outcomes. So yeah. these these are these are the problems I see. And I think usually it's because there's been a lack of either deep thinking in terms of what's been trying to actually address with this work or it or that it's performative. People yeah. just doing it because they see they have to do it and not not necessarily they actually want to do it and, and that they've aligned it to their to what makes sense to their business. Yeah. So, doing that. so and I think when those problems exist they create struggle throughout the whole lifespan of whatever work's being done. And I think that's why you see so many EDI professionals getting burnt out Yeah, because they're working so hard and the the systems in place within their organisation are, are not going the same way. They're not supporting them. Absolutely. No, I hear that so often. I think from my perspective, you know, I'd agree with, you know, kind of people getting EDI as a bit of an add-on. So you're passionate about this and, you know, you fit in with this group. So let's, let's bang it into, bang it onto your role as an addition. I think for me, one of the biggest challenges that some organizations have, organizations that have a diverse workforce and say that they're passionate about EDI. one thing that I've been seeing a lot of across various sectors and internationally is that the head of EDI within organizations is traditionally a white woman. And I think the challenge that you have there is, Firstly, the messaging that it sends there is, okay, traditionally we see that senior leadership teams aren't very diverse anyway, but then if you have a role like ED&I and you've you you know you've got someone in there who is a white woman and potentially her team isn't very diverse either, that can sometimes be a challenge in terms of how people perceive the commitment of the organisation to actually affecting change for underrepresented groups. One of the things you also mentioned was around 
um, I can't remember what you specifically said, but it had me thinking about, you know, when when organizations are creating these EDI initiatives um, and thinking about KPIs, who are they involving in those conversations? Because in order to really affect change that benefits underrepresented groups, it's really important for them to be represented in those conversations. So I kind of see that being a challenge is sometimes there's a discomfort in senior leadership or HR to ask underrepresented groups to get involved because they feel like, you know, how will this be received, et cetera. So I see that as being um, a challenge. And I think fear is a challenge just generally in this area and in this space. You make a, to come back to that point you made about sort of, I guess, the person who, who fronts ED and an organisation, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the time when you look at the power structure of the hierarchy, yeah. I think regardless of the characteristics of the person there can be barriers yeah um, you know speaking across what to so many colleagues i was with someone recently and they, and they said you know i have to know when to pick my battles yeah i, and think, I think and so i think awesome. it's that i think every evening professional will probably well no i, I think would would un, that would resonate with them in that sense of you know sometimes it, this role is lucky to be in the organization yeah. so you've got to pick and choose that there are certain things you can't make you can't make this too uncomfortable you can't make that too apparent you've got to make the stats look a bit better there yeah and i think that's that can be really tiring Definitely. And I think sometimes it's, it's when you can get EDI high, as high up the agenda as possible, so it's around the exec table. Yeah. So, so you really can have those really deep conversations and then make meaningful change. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's got to happen from the top down, hasn't it? Um, so we talked about challenges. I think it's always really important to shine a light on success stories. So from your experience, uh, can you share some success stories or best practice that you've seen in organisations that have successfully integrated EDI into their daily practices? I think... You know, it gives me hope because I've seen so many great examples. I think when you have the, the benefit then of time, you can look back and see how many of those have actually stuck. Yeah. And how many of those have become actually, how many of them have left lasting legacy and change. I think where I've seen real success has been when it has come from the, the very top. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got a, if it's not chief exec, it's an exec director who, yeah. who has that, who's really taking this agenda forward and learn from that. They're open to learn. Yeah. And I think organizations that are really open to, to deal with the situation as it is and acknowledging that. Mm-hmm. So really disconnecting, I guess, the emotion from, from the results that are coming in. Yeah. I think sometimes people can get very fearful, scared, embarrassed. So they start trying to move the goalposts and, and, and change that. Yeah. So I think that when there's that real desire to actually, let's see what the picture really is. Let's learn. Let's take a really hard look. And then let's see how we can start moving in, in yeah. the right direction and understand that that's not a quick fix. Mm-hmm. A recent example has been, I was working with a Manchester-based housing association and they they were renewing their commitments at EDI. And what they recognised was that a lot of their decisions that they were making across across the whole organisation were inconsistent, mm-hmm. um, and, and often didn't have you know there was an inconsistency of, of what these why these decisions being made, who who are they going to benefit, or who might they who might they make life harder for? How are they engaging with representative communities? You know, lots lots of question marks. So they wanted to bring in a, a process, and, and I think in my life now, I think I, I often lean more and more to process. Yeah. How do you take how do you take the learning? How do you take the intention? And how do you actually? Like this into an organization's way of doing things yeah so that make it as easy for people that that's the way we do things around here Absolutely. so we worked with an organization on on a decision making tool so that for every decision that was going to affect someone internally or externally a stakeholder there was a process that people would go through that that took the fear out of the need for training or the need to understand concepts that are forever changing but would just take you know in the moment when they're, when they're starting to formulate their their, their questioning the decisions there were there were prompts to guide them in that and and, and i think that that worked so well because it was accessible for people yeah. they could start they could start their their daily practices were rooted in inclusion mm-hmm. um, and the results from that have, have shown that that people are not people are being engaged their voice is being heard and then it's and then and then the work was then on to so then how do you have those discussions with people when perhaps what you're you know the decision you're making is not going to benefit everyone 
Yeah. How do you now start explaining that communication? Because I, I think a lot of times as well, when when a message is unpalatable, we often see people trying to hide that. Yeah. And actually, how do you get in front of that? And how do you how do you speak about the reason for that? Mm-hmm. So that's been that's been a really positive example. And, and so that was process, I think. And that's when that's when you're you're you're, you're embedding EDI within day-to-day processes rather than so essential processes rather than add-ons or opt-ins where people can pick and choose if they yeah. want to do that. No, perfect. Thank you. And that's a, that's that's a really important point as well. I think you know what we're seeing a lot with EG and I initiatives within organizations is they do tend to be pitched as optional and people are busy so i think the moment you see an optional yeah, you, exactly. you just don't do it it's got to be mandatory but then i think it's got to be mandatory in the right way absolutely and, and people absolutely. have got to be given the time to become comfortable and I, I don't mean comfortable in that it becomes easy yeah i just mean that they you know i think as humans when when we are learning when we're in a learning zone that is uncomfortable mm. and we've got to keep coming back to it we've got to challenge ourselves and we've got to be given the, the space that psychological safety yeah that we can we can learn and i think i think often people feel people feel they don't have that space yeah to do that and i think when certainly with with, with ed and i these are concepts that for many people will be fundamentally changing their outlook Mm-hmm. Or it might be changing the context of, what, of how they think within their family structure or their friendship circle or anything like that. Yeah. And I think you cannot underestimate the the effect that has on people. So the support you need to be in place, be put in place. So with what you were saying as well, I, I completely agree in the sense that, you know, human beings want to know what's in it for them, don't they? As Simon Sinek says, start with the why. So, and I think that's what's been missing a lot with EDNI is that organisations have been so keen to to make sure they're doing something that they've not taken as much time as as they could have done to really understand actually how do we get this through to people and how do we get people wanting to to get involved in this and to do the training etc i think a big um, thing I mean, is understanding that why i mean maybe it's a bit better than a better articulate way of saying what i was trying to say before but i think i remember when unconscious bias training first came, first yeah. came in and not at every organization but certainly at many that, that i was seeing there was a desire to make it so palatable mm. for the majority of the organization yeah. that I feel it lost its moment yeah. because it, it, it was so it was so focused on saying you may be you may be prejudiced you may be racist you know yeah. but it's not your fault yeah. you know these are hardwired and and you know that's okay to an extent and when I talk about making things comfortable for people that's not that's not so it becomes easy mm. but I think you've got to make a comfortable environment so people can keep coming back yes because I think when I first learned about privilege that was a really difficult concept for me yeah. Because like I said, you know, I was working class, immigrant family, mixed heritage family, you know, poor, you know, when I was young. So all these things, you know, I couldn't see my privilege. Yeah. It took me, it took me, it took me the time to learn and to read and, and be exposed and then understand actually the very fact of where I am in my career now is because of my privilege. Mm. So I've been able to, to go from a certain place to another place because of my privilege. And then I can understand that. But I think at the beginning, terms like, you know, white privilege and white fragility and these things, these were very, you know, for someone who spent a lifetime working this area these were terms that I did not like to hear yeah. and, and my initial reaction would be to push back at them and say that's not true and and I think you cannot have people in organization in that constant misalignment and pushing back because you won't get anywhere so you've got to find a way to bring people into the conversation and then and then and then allow them to learn whilst not avoiding the fact of, of saying there are, there will be colleagues who are being mistreated and we need to stop that and, being, and having a real hard line on that and I think sometimes where we do this EDMI training and when it's linked to policies and procedures it's not firm enough yeah, and it doesn't. It um, doesn't give you that assurance. Definitely, I really appreciate you sharing that perspective, Mark, because I'm I'm sure there are a number of white men potentially listening to this who completely identify with you. Is actually, I I didn't grow up with certain privileges, so how dare how dare you call me privileged or or really feeling that you know that appreciation of you know maybe a few years back I didn't like the term 
you know, I don't think anyone necessarily likes the term white privilege or white fragility because it's not necessarily speaking to a positive, but appreciating that those things exist. And hearing someone like you speak like speak about that, I think is is really powerful. So thank you for that. What role do you think HR play in promoting EDI within organizations and what strategies can they employ to drive change? I think that's a, it's a really important question. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really important that HR do not own the agenda. Yeah. I think it's really important that it doesn't be seen as a HR thing. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a it's a HR colleague who's also the head of EDI or also leads yeah. on EDI. Because actually it's bigger than that. And, and HR, they should, you know, they should work on actually how this is how is this embedded across the organization? How is it because it should be it should be owned from the top, it should be owned wherever it's you know the chief exec or whichever chief operating officer that is, but not by HR. I think HR should be, you know, they're a of course they're a, they're an active member and they're probably the driving force in in the process policy and all of those things. But I think sometimes when we see it purely as an HR are involved in, then again it's seen as it's the add-on. It's it's and I think also sometimes it's when when things uh, are not going well. So when there's been a grievance or when you know when there's a negative. Um, and of course, that's that's only seen half. That's only half, and that's probably always stuck in the crisis management side of mm-hmm. things as well. So for me, it's it's HR should be about pushing this out across the business, um, ensuring that uh, coaching is in place for senior leaders. I think I think we saw following the murder of George Floyd just how uncomfortable leaders were in talking yeah. about systemic racism and prejudice within the workplace. And I think that was very telling. And, and I think you saw lots of knee-jerk policies that came into place and statements which have seen you know which have you know, got very dusty. <laughs> and nothing's really happened and i think hr should be there you know providing that ability for executive coaching and through actually how do we how is this going to run throughout an organization and using their ability and their seat at the table in that side of things and also through you know they'll have all the stats on workforce representation pay all of those things yeah. as well and and really having those senior hr colleagues holding leaders to accounts yeah no i completely agree with that actually Mark. thank you what do you think organizations should use to measure the success of edni initiatives I think organisations should think long and hard about the metrics that mm. they that are important to them, because I think when we see bolt-on EDI metrics, that's exactly what they're, they're bolt-on, and they are they're a secondary success indicator. You know, will, will they even make it to the board? You know, they they might they might you know only go to one set of the organisation. So I think it's about having looking at your metrics that are the most important ones, the ones the board want to see, the ones that the chief exec is accountable to, and then seeing how do we now look at these through a certain lens. So let's say for example which are usually important board want, boards want to know how many complaints are coming every quarter. So yeah. they look at those and see, okay, well, if we look at this through, we slice this through protected characteristics, and then we look at intersectionality, and we start looking, what, what picture is this is painting to us? Mm-hmm. And start looking at it there and then seeing, okay, is there disproportionate statistics here? Do we need to address that? Do we need to see why one group is being more affected by another? Yeah. And I think so So that's where I would always start is, is looking at what is your KPI pack? What, mm-hmm. what, what are the top five or however many there are? And then looking at those specific ones rather than saying, Let's 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 take out this prepared EDI stat, which perhaps looks nice to say if you've added an EDI thing, but yeah. actually, does it does it drive behavioural change? And, and then is it just perceived as another thing that people are, have to report against, rather than rather than nothing that that interest and that curiosity comes when you start really understanding the stats that are important to you through different lenses? Absolutely, thank you, Mark. You spoke earlier about you know some some initiatives feeling quite tokenistic and tick boxy. How can organisations ensure that their commitment to EDI isn't just a tick box, but it's a genuine part of the company culture? I think the need for authenticity in this area is so important, and I think I think it's a landscape. I think we get we get more, and more familiar with people are expecting more as well now. I think we're really seeing that people are expecting more, and 
people want to see a genuine desire for change. And, and, and also we're at a place in society where you can look back very easily and see how old are these commitments? Yeah. How long have we been just recycling the same commitments, the same representational leadership programs, the same, you know, we're going to do this. And I think people want to see actually, when will this actually change? So yeah. for me, I think organisations need to think about why are they making this commitment? You know, is it because it's the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. Or is it because it's the right thing to be seen to be doing? You know, does, how have they aligned it to their fundamental business? And and then to to look at that and think, actually, what can they, what what do they actually have control to do? So not these huge sweeping statements that they want to change society, but how can they change their practices? And how can they be a better employer? And then and then to really own that from the very top. And I, I think we've said that a lot about it being owned from the top. But it is so important because that's where everyone's looking to. That's the direction of the organisation. And if that's not important to that top table of people, then well, then it's not important. Absolutely. So, so I think it's about I think it's about really looking at what what ED9 initiatives are taking place and then thinking, are these performative initiatives? Are these just are these just more PR focused? Yeah. Are they just paper are we trying to gaslight people into thinking we're doing certain things? Yeah. Or actually are they going to reveal potentially uncomfortable truths that we're then going to deal with? And, yeah. and for me, it's that commitment. And whenever whenever we work with clients through through Bell's partners, we always have that talk of what is the commitment mm-hmm. to change. Yeah. Because that's that's where the hard work starts. And, that, and that's where I think you, you you find people's metal for that ability is actually this could be uncomfortable and this could be difficult, but it's worth it because this is where this is where we go into as our company. And I think when staff groups recognise that, I think that's where you see the most change across an organisation happen. I think it's also one of the most difficult places because when you start engaging people, when you convince people that this is meaningful work and meaningful change will happen, if you don't mm-hmm. deliver on that promise, I think you've totally obliterated trust. Absolutely. within the organization as well so i think there's got to be that commitment that you're going to you want to follow this promise through yeah so i think yeah long and hard before you make your commitments actually are you in it for the uh, the complete journey definitely i think some of you know i've seen some some organizations look at actually they're starting with their values so how do our values speak to what we want our people experience to be and then breaking those down further into okay how are we measuring this and you know how are we performance managing our leaders to contribute to this, et cetera. So really seeing that from the values all the way way down and making sure it's a key part of the golden thread of the organization, I think is really important. You mentioned earlier about the pushback that we see sometimes in, in these initiatives within organizations. What are some strategies for overcoming resistance or pushback from employees when implementing EDNI initiatives? I think it's about honesty and authenticity. I think as humans, we we know when we're being misled, or more often than not, we know when we're being misled. And we also know when someone is genuine. And for me, some of the moments when I felt really connection with leaders is when they have said they, they don't know the answers. Yeah. They're coming at this with a whole load of bias themselves and preconceived notions, but they're they're here to to look at to take a fresh look and and to to acknowledge their part in this as well. Because I think sometimes again with leaders and organizations, you get this sense that oh, a problem has been discovered somewhere in the organization mm-hmm. and that the leader's gonna fix that. Yeah. When actually you're part of this. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in many ways you may have created this environment so i guess it's that acknowledgement as well and i think when people see that 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 honesty from from leaders and, and organizations i think that's when you when, when you feel a real that's when you have that connection i think and that's where people want to get on board and i also think it's when people can find the the resilience they need to be part of that journey because again you know in every organization i've worked in at some point there has been a strategy for edni and often you expect people who've been victim of a, a of systemic racism or a prejudice system you expect them to share their stories as part of the learning of other colleagues yeah. um which is incredibly um or unfair it, it's, it's a huge it's an expectation that people can just freely start talking about the um the difficult 
situations they have to, to battle with day in day out yeah. almost like it, it's for the it's purely for so that other people can learn and perhaps do better yeah. and i think so i, I think for me it's, it's when organizations really think carefully about how they're going to do this and and who they may bring in to facilitate those conversations because yeah. again i think sometimes we look at people with protected characteristics and we assume okay they'll be great they can they can sort this out or we'll give them some money and they can sort yeah. that but actually i think it takes it takes a, a it takes people not a person to, to help us to, and to guide organizations mm-hmm. and i think i think you always be reflecting on what support you need of internal and external to help definitely. you to help you to help you on that journey definitely and i think you know one of the things that i've i've identified or experienced in organizations is that organizations who have an exec member sponsor or owner of edni have the most transparency and create the most comfortable environments for underrepresented groups to share and to challenge and to affect change within their organizations, but also tend to see the most allyship as well, because it's difficult to challenge something if there is a chance that in challenging it, you know, your CEO is not going to be happy with you. Whereas if your CEO is the exec sponsor for equality, diversity and inclusion, you feel that safety in speaking up about issues, hopefully in a positive way. I think the the other the other thing that you mentioned that was so so important is you know that expectation that people from marginalized groups will be the ones you know will feel comfortable and find it easy to share some of their experiences you know we see that again and again and whilst I understand the intention behind that and I do think it's positive and important to share experiences I think what organizations need to remember is that 10, 15 years ago, underrepresented groups weren't invited to do that. They were seen as angry. They were seen as troublemakers. They were seen as hard work if they did that. So it takes time for, you know, I'm a millennial and I've only become comfortable talking about these issues over the last, I'd probably be in all honesty, say since George Floyd passed, I've never felt so safe speaking about issues like this and even having this conversation with you. And I think it's really important for organizations trying to really affect change to appreciate that actually some people are still getting used to the fact that it is now safe to talk about this. And I guess the challenge there in that, in, in, it's not safe in every organization That's or it's true. not, it's not, it's not healthy for your career yeah. to, to, to talk about these issues in every organization. Yeah. And I think that, I think sometimes because it is like safeguarding, you can never turn around and say safeguarding is not important. No. So you have to say the right things. And I think sometimes organizations, they say they, they say the right things, mm-hmm. but they don't really delve and and really start to look at where, where things are not going correct. I think just, just going back to one of your points as well, I think whenever we're looking at EDI initiatives, I think we need to start with the learning on yeah. those people who are benefiting and enforcing unjust systems. Mm-hmm. That's where it needs to start. Yeah. I think I think so many times we, we, we look for um, you know, colleagues um, who may be a victim, mm-hmm. you know, of, of, of systemic prejudice, racism, and we look for them to be leading these projects. Yeah, that's that's not right because they're they're you know on the whole, you know, they're not the people causing the problems. Mm. So I think you need to look at the the I'm using the word people a lot. We're all humans, <laughs> and, and I think it it's really nuanced. But I think you need to look at you need to look at the power and those people benefiting from that, mm. and that's where you need to start so that those people recognise as a problem. And yeah. they recognise that this is unjust, and they recognise that they need to, you know, be an ally in the true sense of the word, and yeah. and what that will mean for them in giving up and sharing their power that they may have not even realised they were benefiting from. Yeah. You know, before I think you then start, you then start working with colleagues who, you know, may have experienced and then what degree of trauma, but it could be, you know, it, you know, it, I think sometimes when I when I work with, with you know with, with colleagues, you know, who are not white, there is so much trauma that has become lived experience. Mm. 
that these initiatives can start to really uncover that as well. Things yeah. that we've just got used to accepting, we don't see as a problem. And all of a sudden, you think you're going to your workplace and all of a sudden you're now being encountering all this trauma that you've just since birth got used to. Yeah. Really vulnerable place. And then, you know, so I, I just think we need to tread really lightly in making sure that, you know, people are educated first yeah. on these on these topics before we start doing some of that collective group work. Because I think otherwise we're exposing we're exposing people to more more trauma. And then I think if we don't even follow through on these promises, it's just, you know, it's, it's abuse. Yeah. So, you know, probably not the most articulate way to say that. <laughs> but I think, I think that's <laughs> that the sort of like, you know, it's doing that, that hard work and that introspection. Definitely. I think it's also really important to, you know, I, I agree with you. I think it's it's easier to, you know, they say it's, you know, it's easier to receive challenge from someone who is like you in the sense that, you know, that person understands your background, your experience. And subsequently, you'll find it easier to listen to that person and to actually potentially warm to the idea that, you know, you might have had privilege or more privilege than other people. I think it's just really important to make sure that the education uh, is informed by or done by uh, people that have maybe not enjoyed some of the privileges in life, because I think it's difficult to create equity and inclusion without having that information and I think that's you know that's just kind of my my key takeaway or, or kind of point from from today's from from just that discussion mark is just making sure we're involving the right people in the conversations and, so, that and I think that and I think at the point in time because I think there is there's reading we can do there are podcasts we can listen to there are videos we can watch there are speak you know there's so many things we can do so to, to engage with the right people with that lived experience and 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 who have the ability to to share those powerful stories and and hold, you know you know those people who who have expertise in teaching yeah. and learning and then we can then widen that. I a hundred percent agree that we need to get you know people with who's not theory based experience who, who can talk and I think people who have operated at those levels in an organisation where they understand how the mechanics work as well and we yeah. bring all of those people together Absolutely. and we sign up and we make those changes rather than you know because I think I think collectively we we can be very intelligent. We can we can see things we can do things. I think when we start relying on one person, mm. then we're just human and we have our we have bias. You know, there's no way no, no matter what characteristics we present to the world, we will have our internal bias. So so I always okay. I always enjoy working with a collective group of people where you know you're even within that EDI work you're holding yourself accountable to your colleagues yeah. and you're challenging each other and you know and you're pushing for that that, that better thinking that deeper thinking. Absolutely, thank you. So you work with a range of organisations. What do you think? businesses can do to stay ahead of evolving trends and challenges in equality, diversity and inclusion? I think it's about remaining curious mm-hmm. and, and embedding this work into, into those, you know, into those KPIs we spoke about earlier. Yeah. I think too often certain protected characteristics are joined at the moment in the spotlight mm-hmm. and everyone scrabbles around and we do things and often it's performative and then we move on to the next and it's like, yeah. okay, we're sold for that. We're on to the next thing now when we haven't even scratched the surface. Yeah. So, so for me, it's about staying curious on, on all those areas, working with representative groups, so whether that's your employees, your stakeholders, but, and find out what are, the, what are the challenges, what's going on right now, because they are the future trends. Yeah. If, if we're just listening, we're staying curious, and we're having that open dialogue, then we'll know what's important, and we won't have, we won't need to be on the back foot saying, "Oh, we've just found out this is important. What can we do about it?" We would, we'd, have, we'd have known. So, I think if there that if there are those authentic channels of communication with organisations, and people have as we spoke about that, that psychological safety that they feel actually leaders want to know what's going on. You know, they want to know my opinion, so I'm going to share it. And yeah. it's not going to be perceived as me being 
angry or demanding or anything like that. It's going to be welcomed. And something's going to happen with that. And I'm going to be kept informed of that. I think organizations that embed EDI in that way, then then they won't be, then they'll be they'll be they'll be in a good space. Um and regardless of how you know the the, the acronym of EDI change or when you know when the longer gets put into it and all these other things, they'll be doing that anyway. Yeah. They won't need to worry about this new this new thing because it'll be it'll be part of who, of who they are. Amazing. Thank you, Mark. So I'd like to end with a call to action for our listeners who really want to make a difference in moving the needle. So what would the one thing be for you as a call to action for anyone listening? My call to action would be to to look at your day-to-day process in all areas and your decision-making and how do you how do you look at that through the lens of equality, diversity, inclusion and how do you start making changes there so that ripple can, can go across an organisation. Excellent. Mark, thank you so much. It's been a brilliant conversation. I know people are going to enjoy this. They will agree with some parts. They'll disagree with some parts. But it'll definitely start from dis- some discourse um, and conversation, which is what the purpose of this essentially is. Well, we want to get people talking and we want to hopefully help organisations to do the work and to get the work to stick. So thank you again for your time. It's been brilliant. Thank you, Grace. This podcast is brought to you by Acquaintance Consulting. We'd love it if you could take a minute at the end of this podcast to follow subscribe whichever is easier or available for you on the platform that you're listening to us on we're really keen to grow this channel and really impact equality diversity and inclusion across the world and with your support we can do just that 